Hi, I'm Francesca Maxime, and thanks so much for joining us today on Wise Girl. It's Valentine's Day, February 14th, and I'm in New York City with a very uh, special guest on the other side of the internet, so to speak, the author of The Body Keeps the Score, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. Um, a lot of you who are aware of uh, a lot of the trauma-informed uh, practices that are happening now really are very much basing a lot of their um, practices on his research and his recommendations, and I'm really honored to, to have him here today. Uh, he has spent his career trying to study or studying how children and adults adapt to traumatic experiences and translated emerging findings from neuroscience and attachment research to develop and study a range of potentially effective treatments for traumatic stress in children and adults, and in 1984 set up one of the first clinical research centers in the U.S. dedicated to studying the treatment of traumatic stress in civilian populations. And rather than go on about his bio, which we can find later, although it is quite extensive, I just would like to introduce everyone to Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, and thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. I know you're a busy guy. So getting right to it, I think one of the things that um, really stuck out uh, in my mind is that when you wrote in here that uh, trauma is pre-verbal, can you explain that? Well, uh, we did the first neuroimaging study uh, of people actually reliving their trauma. Uh, Usually in neuroimaging studies, you don't do that because it's so painful to basically have a flashback. I don't think today an institutional review board would allow you to do that anymore, but we happen to do that. Uh, and what we saw is that the whole verbal part of the brain shuts down and the trauma really clearly is imprinted on the core perceptual and housekeeping function of the body, basically. So it goes into the most primitive parts of the brain that make your body feel that it's in danger and to cope with danger. And so it has nothing to do with understanding, figuring things out. It's really about your body automatically going back into the state of, oh my God, I'm going to die. I'm going to disintegrate, basically. So when people have this understanding of it being pre-verbal, it being something that isn't um, necessarily something that they would know that how to control or, or fix or the triggers, uh, when it's in, when it's, you know, when it's that deep, so to speak, do you feel as though yeah. that shifts the argument or shifts the conversation into, again, what's been said before, not, you know, what you do or what, what's, hap what's happened to you, meaning how you were, how you were affected by your early experiences. Well, see, understanding something doesn't mean that it's, understanding why you screwed up doesn't make you not screwed up. Now you know, oh, this is why I get so scared. Oh, this is why I get so angry. And that's helpful to know why this is, but it doesn't make it go away. And so you need to really go much deeper into, as well as we can, into these deeper areas of uh, consciousness, unconsciousness, body awareness, to really shift, shift these, these automatic reactions that we have. What's also really important is that in, out there, people tend to talk about trauma being a memory of a bad event. But that's not really what it is. That bad event actually is over and no longer relevant. But the trauma is that your body continues to be organized around that bad experience 
and that your body has been un unable to come to the conclusion that it's over now, it's I'm okay now, and so your body keeps replaying that old scene. Not only does it play, keep playing the old scene, it all this affects the way you perceive current reality, and that's the that's the biggest challenge is that um, trauma causes you to have a very noisy brain, oftentimes a shut-up brain, becomes very much more difficult to learn, to focus, to pay attention to ordinary things. Right. And from a mindfulness perspective, just the lens that I've been working with a little bit, some people would say that that's wrong view, so to speak. And so that that is, you know, you're not seeing clearly, so to speak, which from the perspective of the <laughs> from the perspective of the um, prefrontal cortex not not maybe being as engaged um, perhaps that's true I don't know but it's interesting how the, the research of mindfulness is really uh, progressing and like my colleague Tanya Singer did the largest mindfulness study that I know of funded by the European Commission um, and found that only mindfulness that's accompanied by self-compassion and self-awareness is at the end helpful. I think that's a very important finding. That mindfulness is a nice word. Many traumatized people have a hell of a time becoming mindful. Meditation can be extremely difficult for traumatized people because once you become still, all this poison that's inside of you starts coming up. And so you need much more than just being mindful. You need to actually have learn how to actually be with yourself and to learn to be with yourself compassionately. And that's a very hard thing. And that's actually the reason why we are doing our MDMA research, for example, right now. And because MDMA clearly helps people to be more compassionate about themselves and to be less angry, condemning, mean to themselves. So they can really say, yeah, that's what I went through. That's just terrible what I had to endure. And that link is terribly important. Right, right. The ability to um, approach that with compassion. And actually, in my mindfulness studies, uh, it was recommended to me that I take the somatic experiencing uh, certification training, and that's what I have completed. So um, that is part of the augmentation around what you're talking about when you get into mindfulness. Yeah. So, so what we do, so what Tanya Singer did, and what we do in the MDMA also, is not only uh, somatic experiencing, but also internal family systems therapy. Uh, to really uh, be aware of all the parts of you that you have developed to deal with the trauma, uh, the avoidant part, and the self-criticizing part, and the tough part, and that you really get to understand how you have adapted in many ways to deal with how overwhelming that experience was back then. Right. And that tends to come up in the MDMA uh, study that we're doing very clearly, is that people access the parts of them that they condemn, that they hate, that they can't stand, stuff like that. Right, right. And, and, and to your point on that, uh, through the use of the MDMA, um, there's also the social piece of uh, feeling safe around and feeling perhaps more willing to 
to go there, if you will, and look at these things when you trust perhaps a practitioner that you're working with or a therapist or someone who may be able to guide you in an IFS yeah. uh, kind of a, a, a situation. Trust, trust yourself and trust somebody who is really very tuned in to you, attentive to you. Yeah, the, the relational piece is still terribly important. And when you're traumatized, it's oftentimes very hard to trust people. And so actually, oftentimes finding a route around, primarily relying on trusting the therapist, it may be very triggering, uh, finding another way in which you can learn to trust yourself. Right, right. Um Beautiful. Yeah, the self-trust is, is critical. There's, there's a place here where um, I've written down in, in your book, being able to feel safe with other people is the single most important aspect of mental health. Safe connections are fundamental to meaningful and satisfying lives. Right. So the shift away from being traumatized or triggered uh, often involves, it sounds like, um, the relational field and support of some kind, whether it's a therapeutic environment or a yoga class or um, something. It sounds as though if we actually experience at a visceral level safety and the comfort of another person, regardless of whether or not that's you know, romantic, that we get uh, some benefit that, from that, which may be intuitive, but also proven at, an, at another level. Well, it's, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg issue. The outcome of good treatment is you feel safe with other people. Thank God it's not a prerequisite for treatment. And because that is the problem when you're traumatized, is that in many ways you fundamentally do not feel safe with other people. And so helping people to establish a sense of safety, not so much secondarily through us, I'd say, it's a technical issue for the therapist is to help people to feel safe inside. But that doesn't certainly depend on us. We are there to help people to explore those avenues inside of themselves. So safety inside, how is that achieved? By uh, calming down your heart rate variability, getting to know your sensations, get to know, accept your sensations knowing how you can change your sensations, being aware of your body, being aware of how you can change your body, uh, reestablish your sense of time. A very big issue in trauma is that your sense of time disappears. So the moment you start feeling something, uh, you tend to feel, oh my God, this will last forever. This is terrible. Let's take a drug to make it go away. And to become aware of uh, how long these internal sensations last, and how you can uh, manage them and affect them and change them by breathing and movement and singing and rhythmical activities and stuff like that. Uh, but it, at the end, it is to the therapist is there not to provide the safety. Uh, it doesn't come from your therapist, but to help you to establish the safety inside of you. At the end, people say, oh, as long as I'm with Dr. Vanderklok, I feel safe. But once I'm not in his office, I feel scared again. That would be a terrible outcome. How does that work with attachment theory and the idea that um, while we're relational, you know, you want people to 
be able to self-regulate at a certain level as opposed to just that automatic um, auto-regulation that you find in, in avoidant attachment. Um, how would you explain the difference between when people are sort of walling off and, and, and you know, pulling away versus when they can really sense that they're auto-regulating? Well, see, it's a developmental issue. The attachment theory is largely around the first three years of life. Okay? After the first three years of life, basically things get too complicated and the attachment researchers hook off. Uh, so uh, people like Beatrice Beebe and Atronic and Carnalize Ruth study that very early piece and then the study stops and you see what happens later on. Right? And so indeed, when we're very small, we, we very much depend on other people to regulate things for us. Babies cannot regulate themselves. Uh, uh, I think our greatest teachers are kindergarten teachers, right? because kindergarten teachers uh, are working very much with people who have brains very much like traumatized people, tiny sliver of a prefrontal cortex, big limbic brain. Right? And so what do limbic, uh, kindergarten teachers do? They, uh, they time things very carefully, they protocolize things very carefully, they do little bits at a time, help kids to count, help kids to go and next and now this and next then. And that's very much how, how the brain functions at this time. And at some point, people need to regulate themselves. And not only avoiding personality, we all need to regulate ourselves. And when you're in a relationship with people, with another person, you need to regulate yourself because the person who you're with may become disturbed, angry, upset. And our natural inclination is to, for a mirror neuron system, to do the same thing that a person does. And so if your partner becomes angry, you're likely to become angry also. And the great skill is to develop a really good medial prefrontal cortex and say, oh, my partner is really angry and I am not. And I know the sensation in my body that my partner must be having of great disturbance, but they don't belong to me. I'm not angry right now. And to really get to be there for your partner and say, honey, I know this is very upsetting, but I'm not going to escalate by assuming your mirror neuron system. Right, yeah, that's... That's, and, uh, that's not the same as avoiding detachment at all. That's no. attachment to yourself, so that you know the difference between your internal system and the system of the people around you. Differentiation and individuation, not right. um, not avoidance. Yeah, absolutely, and and, and interdependence and relational uh, capacity, um, and so. Well, you, you lose a lot of terms. You use a lot of terms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I like to you, talking four-letter words. You like talking in four-letter yeah. words. Yeah. Um, how about L O V E? Which is what? It's a four-letter word, L-O-V-E. Uh, that's a good word, yeah. Complicated word, but it's the, yeah. So where does that play into healing? Um, it is what results when you, once you are healed. Uh, so when you, when you traumatize, you're very suspicious of the promise of love. Once you can trust yourself again, you start becoming open to it again. Okay. 
So Dick Schwartz also talks about um, the self, the deepest self, um, he uses the capital S, self, uh, yep. to describe this. Um, and Frank Anderson talks a lot about it also, that, that you are, in fact, the one who is with these parts of you, with these, right. whatever you want to call them, but, um, you know, sort of areas in your life. It, that it's, it's the metaphor. Probably is not how it works, uh, but but it's a, it's a useful tool in therapy. And to develop the capacity to observe yourself, and that, uh, that from a neuroscience neuroscience point of view, that's very much located in the medial prefrontal cortex in these midline structures of the brain that allow you to observe yourself, and you could call it self. But if you get traumatized, that part of your brain gets very, very, very uh, damaged. Is, does, does, are certain things more helpful than others uh, at uh, engendering that mentalizing or perspective taking possibility? Like the yoga, like narrative? Uh, like... I think yoga would be, is a very good way of, of uh, being able to, of learning how to observe yourself. But you can space out during yoga, just like you can space out during meditation. Um, but actually, theoretically, although it has not been studied, I would love to study it. And if anybody has some spare money around, send it to me and I'll study it, um, is martial arts. And I, I think it's no accident that uh, spontaneously around the world, these martial arts arise in after dangerous situations. Huh? Capoeira in, in Brazil and various forms of martial arts in Asia, I think are the, are the results of people try, trying to restore their brains by training their brain again to be very alert and very attentive, both to their own internal self and also in dealing with stuff that comes from the outside. And to my mind, those may be the best trauma treatments that there are but we're not there yet in terms of studying it. Do you feel like study needs to be done in order for people to really validate what some folks have already found to be helpful? That's, that's the name of the game. Huh? A, so clinical wisdom always precedes science. Uh, so as somebody, uh, somebody finds something that's very useful, that person practices it, people are attracted to it, they come and do it, and the next step is to show what it does and how generalizable it is. So that it's not just a function of the charisma of that particular person, but actually what, the, what that person does, and it can be taught to other people. That's the progression of it. But these methods are always found by individual practitioners. Usually their methods die with them, uh, in part because there's not enough research to validate the power of their methods. So they tend to have um, devoted acolytes who love the master. Uh, but unless you do research, it doesn't really become part of our, of our cultural heritage. Got it. Um, I have another note from your book uh, that says, immobilization is at the root of most traumas. Can you talk about right. that? Well, it's the inability to move. And I think you interviewed Stephen Porges also. I did. And actually, it's, it's one of the 
all these observations. Uh, Pierre Janet makes it in his 1889 book. Uh, Sigmund Freud and Marcel Boyer make it in 1893. Uh, Pavlov makes it in, in 1924. And they, people keep observing over and over again that what really causes the trauma is that the brain's natural way of dealing with a terrible situation is to activate your fight flight and to get the hell out of there and to start moving. But if you're being immobilized, if you're being held down or you sit in a cage or your attachment system prevents you from leaving that particular person, then the deeper system starts deteriorating and it goes deeper into the housekeeping of your body. What are the problems with a focus on behavioral um, quote unquote interventions? Uh, Tell me what you mean with that. So if we're only focusing on how people are acting and not addressing anything that might be going on uh, physiologically or with their nervous system, how would you recommend that practitioners integrate more trauma-informed approaches into their work? I find it, I, I'm not quite sure what you're talking about. So it would be hard to answer that question. Uh, so I guess mainly, mainly, if there was something that you could let practitioners who aren't very informed in trauma know um, about how to perhaps deal with a child, a child, maybe a teenager, for example, who has, you know, a lot of behavioral issues, what kind of recommendations should they be trying or could they be looking at that might be more effective than just managing the behavioral symptoms of destructive so behavior? It's, it's a, it's a, I think what's important for a clinician to understand is that all of these behaviors are meant to assure their survival. And so the first job on the part of people who want to help is to understand how is this particular behavior like hitting other kids or cutting yourself or taking drugs. What's that doing for this kid in order to help them to survive their particular circumstances? And then see if you can actively provide that kid with alternative ways of dealing. And not say, stop that, but say, hey, let's try out what it's like to play volleyball instead. Or what it's like to slow down our breathing to six scars per minute. Or what it's like to toss a ball back and forth. And so it's, it's very important for a clinician to explore for themselves and with the people they work with what helps the system to calm down so that the system doesn't continue to respond to whatever is going on as if their life is being threatened. Uh, but very much uh, the, the job of the clinician is to become very good at self-regulatory techniques. So, uh, so I like to say, we get, when we go to school, we get a license to malpractice. And then because nobody has to take an exam in self-regulation before, uh, before they are allowed to practice. Self-regulation, of course, is the foundation of everything. Uh, and so um, we all need to learn how to regulate ourselves, see what helps people to calm them down, help people become focused. And those are the methods that we apply to the people we work with. And, and it's always an exper experimental issue. Does this help? Does it help to toss a ball? Does it help to put your hands behind, behind between somebody's sh shoulder blades? Does it help to 
walk on the balance beam. Does it help to lie under heavy blankets? Uh, um, so it's really an experimentation and familiarization with the methods that helped bodies to feel safe and calm. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you, because I think that that's um, helpful to a lot of people. And just a bookmark, when we self-regulate, then that is an embodiment that other people can not only sort of feel and recognize, but that it's a way for us to be with them um, that we can't, you know, we can't necessarily do otherwise. Um, when you're when you're looking at uh, the way that the funding is going right now for the research in trauma, the kinds of things that are that are being looked at, like your MDMA study, where are you most excited, and where would you most like things to? Uh, by the way, there is no funding for good trauma work, as far as I know. So the MDMA study is funded through the MAPS program, the Multidisciplinary Association for uh, Psychedelic Studies. Rick Doblin is an astounding fundraiser. And uh, like our neurofeedback research, neurofeedback, very, very uh, potentially effective treatment. It's all hustling, coming up with your own money, asking your mom and daddy for some money, uh, because um, that's not where the research money goes from the government. So where is the research that's being done that you're most excited about, in addition to this one you mentioned already? Well, the neurofeedback and the, and the MDMA. Yeah. And generally, the psychedelic things. There isn't much research going on. And most research funding is to show how trauma messes people up. And every week, every day, I get another article in the mail, how trauma messes people up. So what would but you like? I don't. I don't get an article more than twice a year about how about real good treatments. Do, do you think that that micro traumas, meaning that the things that happen to individuals, are then what create the more systemic macro um, issues that we see societally? That's also a question that's hard for me to relate to. I, I'm not quite sure what you're talking about. I guess I'm just trying to sort of get a handle on the fact that if we sort of pay attention more to our own individual self-regulation and, and that of others or finding ways to do that more en masse and not just one-off and one-off, although we're each individual beings, might that not perhaps help inform some of these greater um, societal woes that we tend to face? Um, I feel like societally we're a bit uh, we're a bit traumatized right now, but that may not be an appropriate question for you uh, to answer if that doesn't make sense. If we're individually more regulated, might it have a trickle-down effect on broader society? But I just told somebody uh, who interviewed me from a different country about these issues is uh, America is the only place that doesn't have universal health care as considers itself. And I think that's based on our deep racism. And so you haven't been raised in a country where at that time almost everybody had blue eyes. Um, you think about other people as you. And so when, say, hit, when the tax man hits you up for an extra 10% of your salary in order to help people just like you, you go, sure. But uh, in this diverse society, the issue of uh, over, overcoming our racism and not saying, oh, these people who are different from me are just lazy and stupid and that's why they're in trouble is a major issue. I and mean, you see that in our politics so pervasively 
that we will not help people who are not us. And so uh, it starts off with the whole school system, that school systems are funded by the local communities, which automatically means that poor people will have very poor school systems because they don't have the money. And so, so it's pervasive for our society is that we don't have a culture that we see other people just like ourselves. And we put up with unspeakable uh, lack of equality and, and, and we put up unspeakable uh, condemnations of people who we don't know anything about. Uh, if you really know what it's like to be a 16-year-old minority girl uh, in an inner city who has a kid and tries to survive without assistance, it's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling how anybody comes out of that. And so I think we're all locked up in our ghettos. Uh, uh, I was very fortunate to go to school in the south side of Chicago, uh, which is still about the worst place that I've gone to, worse than Nairobi, worse than the slums of Johannesburg in many ways, worse than Calcutta. Uh, so, so, so there's these areas right next door to us where people live on, on the unspeakable circumstances. And somehow we managed to ignore that or gloss over it, etc., etc. And so it is at the root of so much. But on the other hand, uh, you don't need to be an inner city minority person to have suffered tremendous trauma. It happens in all areas of society. But the difference is that if you are um, a college educated person with some money, you will read my book, which only costs. 11.95 on Amazon, and you will see that there's options for you, and you'll find these, most of which are not reimbursed by insurance companies. Well, thank you for mentioning that, because in social work, you know, schools and in, in other kinds of um, programs where they're training folks to help folks like the girl you mentioned, um, I'm not so sure that there um, is a real awareness around um, the kind of work that you bring to the table and the kind of uh, things that are in your book uh, in terms of trying helping uh, girls like that? Oh, no, I don't, I don't think it's quite true. I think my sense is that most social work students actually do read my book these days. I think my book is a part of the curriculum of most social work students, actually. So it's, but social work won't solve these problems. See, that's the issue. Um, it's a much larger societal issue of uh, how do you support people with housing? How do you support people to get jobs? Uh, do you have early maternal care so that uh, parents don't have to leave their kids in order to make uh, to uh, get to work? Uh, you know, in France and Canada and Singapore and Holland, they have one-year maternal leave where the government pays for very good childcare centers. Makes an enormous difference. The incarceration rate in the Netherlands now is 68 per 100,000. The incarceration rate in the US is 980 per 100,000. So the social policies that discriminate against people or that don't help people who are um, in, in tough states have vast implications for how we live. So social policy to prevent trauma is just as critical in many ways as having, whoops, just, there you it's, go. it's not just this, it's vastly more 
vastly more. Huh? So, so mental health is only a little piece on top of all of that. Uh, uh, many mental health professionals think that they sort of have the key to the kingdom. Uh, but we are a very small part of the whole treatment process. I think uh, maybe yoga teachers and your teachers in school and your aftercare program and your uh, health, uh, your, your child care program and your church. And so there, there's so many parts of trauma healing and the mental health professional is just a small part. It's just a small part. And I feel like, you know, you touched on this earlier for a lot of folks who are privileged enough to buy your book, read your book and go and pay for these particular services right. that aren't available to everyone. Um, or if they are that they, they can't be afforded. Not everybody can pay for them. Can you talk about why people don't think of themselves as trauma, quote unquote, victims or survivors, if it's sometimes small T trauma, as opposed to when it might be quote unquote, big T trauma, like a tornado or- You just mentioned, those are two of my most unfavorite terms. So can you reframe this? I don't know what small T and big T is. Being in, ignored by your alcoholic mother, is that a small T or a big T trauma? You, so you're losing language that I can't relate to. So if you have developmental trauma versus if you have incident trauma that is sort of one time, um, like a tornado where you lose your home and your family, although everything was fine, or, um, uh, you know, prior. And, you know, if you have, um, like you say in your book, 9-11, some people recover differently than others. Well, natural disasters, by and large, are really crappy events that are hard on people, but usually the communities pull together, a lot of help comes, and people do pretty well with that. And so natural disasters rarely devastate people for life. It would be very unusual. Most, most trauma, which devastates the same consequences, actually is attachment trauma. Trauma that occurs within the attachment system. And so being... And so the greatest source of danger for kids is our own parents, not hurricanes and not Osama bin Laden. And the greatest source of danger for women is their intimate partners. And so it's, by and large, the, the, the nasty trauma is the trauma that, that involves the people who you're supposed to love and who are supposed to take care of you. Except but that's true for people like us. But if you're poor um, deprivation, the issue of poverty and opportunity becomes a huge issue. So essentially, it all goes back to when we were young. No. <laughs> no. No. It doesn't all go back to where we A large part of it goes back of where we are and who is there for us right now. Uh, so if you're an educated person who has been taught to think in terms of opportunities and who has an experience of having opportunities, uh, you're likely to be able to think about your way out. If you have a good support system of people who are really there for you and say, boy, this is terrible, how can we solve this? 
these two things make an enormous amount of difference. Uh, so it's, no, it's not all about what happened when you were little, large part of it. Is what's the context in which the trauma occurs right now? Uh huh. And and can you, before we close, just talk about the ways in which triggers can um, reignite things and what people can do when they are triggered um, by something and why sometimes just talking about something over and over again isn't necessarily what's most needed? Well, the first thing is to identify your triggers. Uh, because I think most people who are traumatized just keep reacting in certain ways and are not aware that certain things make them angry or irritated or shut down. So first of all, to become aware of your flow of yourself through the day and to become aware of your triggers. And you can do that by yourself, but it's nice if somebody helps you with that. Okay? But you need to be still and begin to accept, yes, I go nutty sometimes. Many people are unwilling to, unable to go there and notice that. Huh? Um, and to really become aware that there are certain things I do that are upsetting to the people around me, etc. So the first thing is awareness. And for awareness, you need to be relatively safe. And you need to have some people around you who are accepting and who don't wag their fingers immediately and go like, huh, have you noticed how? And then once you have noticed, you might be able to discover some ways of dealing with your triggers. And it could be tapping yourself, or going to the yoga class, or dropping that pill. And of course, the most common way of dealing with triggers is for people to go to the liquor store and start taking a swig. Yeah. Or for people to smoke, smoking dope. And so, and so identification of triggers becomes terribly important because otherwise it's the stimulus response stuff. You get upset <clears throat> and then you say, okay, I'll take a drink and it won't bother me so much. So awareness is very, very important. Understanding, oh, looking at yourself. And so in terms of, of healing, the activation of the midline structures of the, of the cortex and really uh, observing yourself and knowing yourself is really very much at the core. And that implies, as you sort of were referring to earlier, that you're able to accept yourself as you are, noticing that you do have these triggers and then, you know, look at them from that. Maybe, maybe. No, no, I don't think you accept yourself for throwing temper tantrums and taking gashes out of your skin or burning cigarettes out of your arm. Uh, it's unlikely, oh, that's okay. No, but you notice it. And you go, oh, I wonder what that's about. But no, no, no doing nasty things to yourself or other people should not necessarily lead to self-acceptance of doing nasty things to yourself. Sure. Yeah. No, yeah. I get that. I, that's, that's fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, this business of um, awareness, this business of um, allowing, uh, you know, your body, if you will, to, to, to be in a place where, you know, you teach it how to self-regulate sounds like it's the answer. And uh, it sounds like the self-regulation piece. 
it's an issue of, of curiosity and exploration. Uh, so it's very important to find yourself uh, a fascinating object of, of study and observation. So the culture is very much, the culture is very much like, are things going wrong? Go to your doctor and get the pill to make it go away. And that's very much the opposite of trauma treatment, which is, oh, interesting. I get so scared or I get so defensive or I get so angry. I wonder what is going on with me, this creature that I am, this body that I inhibits, inhabits, uh, that is reacting this way. So in some ways, that is issue that Dick Schwartz uh, so very well called a self, has self-healing, uh, the, the managing yourself, learning about yourself. The culture is not very much there. The culture is very much do that out there, but uh, trauma healing is very much learning to take care of yourself, learning to look after yourself, learning to know what's going on with you and treat yourself like you would treat a little baby who is very vulnerable. Take very, learn to take very good care of you. And nobody will do that for you as well as you can do it for yourself. Beautiful. Well, on that note, um, going okay. back, treating yourself like a little baby, everyone, um, the body keeps the score. Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, uh, really enjoyed having you on today and um, look forward to hearing more about your new work uh, coming up. Okay. Thank, Thank you very much. Thank you Good so luck. much. Take care. Okay.